Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love addicted to true crime catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a e crime central crave adventure explore asian action movies on hayah searching for something extreme check out skating snowboarding and more on fuel tv plus the global home of action sports and find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's hit nation playlist there's new free shows and movies to love every week say free this week in your xfinity voice remote this is the crossover an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. And we are back. Crossover NBA podcast, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. Zooming back right past the midseason mark of the NBA season. Can you believe we're past that 41-game mark already? Uh, I cannot. I cannot. Um, the, the, the calendar plays tricks on us every year. It's, all, it's January 16th. All-Star break feels like it's a long ways off. It's like a month away. But we're past the mathematical midpoint, which is, I guess, really the only midpoint. There is no other midpoint. There's only the one... That is math dictated. And I, I can't believe we're halfway done uh, with the season. It's also weird to look up and think like some of the early season trends that didn't hold, but some of the ones that did, and you're starting to see the the sorting out and going, is this really where we are? We'll get into some of that, obviously. But You know, maybe maybe this is a stupid question, but why is the All-Star game in February? I, like, why is it not the midpoint? Why is it not at the midpoint of the season? I've wondered that. Like, why? I, I also think it's we have an answer, like NBA? Hello? There's there I'm sure there's an answer for this. Uh but also doesn't it feel like it kind of like keeps creeping further back somehow? Like in another 5 years we're going to do the All-Star break at like game 70 or something. It just feels like it gets later. It is like 2 thirds of the way through the season. Um which is a weird time to have a break. Like oh we're 2 thirds of the way through the season when we come back it's going to be this mad dash to the finish. It's it is. It's the the timing of it is odd. Not to, to say nothing of the NBA putting it in nothing but cold weather cities for like five, six years in a row. Um, 
looking forward to Salt Lake City. It's going to be fine. But like NBA, uh, let up already. Give us give us a break. Give us some sun at some point and some warmth in the middle of February. Yeah, I'm sure there's a legitimate reason for it, but uh, I'd like to hear it. I'm sure Mike Bass or Tim Frank in the NBA office would be happy to call us and tell us exactly what the uh, rationale is for having the All-Star game February. But we are past the midpoint of the season, um, and you would think that's where you'd want to place uh, an All-Star game. All right, on this episode, we are going to get into our mid-season awards from MVP to Coach of the Year, Rookie of the Year, all that good stuff. But, Howard, before we get into that, I want to touch on a couple things at the top of the show. First, your Golden State Warriors uh, struggling right now losers of four out of the last five they have sunk below 500 uh once again uh did not look good in a lost chicago while everyone was watching football the warriors were giving up 43 points to nikola vucevic and they were losing their fourth game in their last five these losses have been pretty bad when you look at some of the teams they've been uh losing to orlando the Zombie Suns, now Chicago uh, on the road. Their road record is terrible. Now, if you ask the Warriors, they will tell you all is well. Here's Clay Thompson after the game talking about uh, his level of concern for this team right now. None. Zero. Zero. Just get us there healthy in one piece, hopefully with a decent seed. So, Howard, are you buying Clay Thompson's position here? Is there really nothing to worry about in San Francisco? And it really is just about getting to the playoffs healthy, getting a decent seed, and they'll be just fine. <laughs> I mean, there's merit to it, and you have to bake into it the fact that, one, it's Clay talking. Um, Clay is is the uh, you know epitome of of kind of what us worry uh, kind of approach. Like the like that's always him. Um, the, all, all, all of their confidence, championship swagger, everything, it's all like clay carries all of that. Plus clay is the most laid back dude in the world. So there's not a whole lot that's going to make it sound like clay is, is panicking about, um, real quick, like the loss of the bulls, I didn't think actually was as bad. Like you mentioned some of their other losses and, and, and yes, those were bad. The bulls have actually revived themselves. They've been really good lately and they were at home. So that one would be less alarming if it weren't in the midst of these other losses that you mentioned. And I'm not looking to downplay it, but yeah, um, it, it, they're, they're still in bad shape. They still can't win consistently on the road. The losing to the bulls on the road at this stage of the season with the bulls actually playing like a strong team again is not the worst of those. Um, but you know, I, there's, there's plenty else to worry about. They've got more like the, like the, the games ahead are tough. Um, none of this is, 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 easing up for the Warriors. And, you know, Steph just got back within the last week, so he's still kind of playing his way back into rhythm and probably game conditioning. So that's probably not helping. Uh, I think maybe a lot of us uh, lulled ourselves into believing that, well, Steph gets back, they'll just be, they'll be fine. They'll just go right back to where they were. Um, But they already had this big hole to dig out of, and the bench is still a little bit wonky. Um, and on this road trip, which I mentioned, you know, by the time people hear this, the game, you know, they'll have played the game against the Wizards. They they better have won that one. Uh, that's that's an absolute must against a, a really poor Wizards team. But then they finish out this road trip at Boston against your Celtics, and then at Cleveland on a back to back. That's brutal. When they get home, they've got games against the Nets. No KD, so that's good news for the Warriors. 
Home against the Grizzlies, that's a rough one. Home against the Raptors. And then they go out for three more road games, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Denver. So, like, this this is a stretch that, you know, they really need to kind of bear down and not, like, I think Clay's attitude is healthy to the extent that it's not time to panic. But they do have to kind of, like, pull this together and start playing defense consistently, winning on the road consistently, if they're going to do what I think Clay is alluding to by implication, which is, we just need to get to the playoffs Whatever seed we are, we'll be fine. We can win road games. We can win game sevens in, in hostile environments. We're, you know, we're champions. We know what we can. That's fine. But at some point, they have to play like that consistently. So I feel like I'm somewhere in between on on the Warriors panic meter or the, the, the need for it. I will say this as one last thought, because you know where I am on this. I've always been in the same place on this. About a month to go to the trade deadline. I feel like the Warriors have to do something. Like, move one of those young guys. I don't, again, I don't know what Weissman or Moody or even Kuminga are worth at this point. I know they want to keep all of them. I know they certainly would probably rather keep Kuminga, um, given he's, you know, started to emerge a bit. But, man, I, just as I've said with LeBron, don't waste a season of LeBron playing at this level. Don't waste a season of Steph playing at this level. Next season isn't promised. You're not going to be at this level forever. Draymond's already talking about how I know the writing's on the wall. I'm not going to be here forever. Draymond and Clay have contract situations. Like, you got to just be all in. And if that means, you know, trading whatever is necessary to bolster your core, I feel like they got to do it. And no, I don't know what that deal is, but um, I, I, think, I think that's an urgency over the next few weeks. So, you know, watching the Warriors and given where we are in the season, like I'm reminded of that old Dennis Green line. Like, they are who we thought they were. Like, this is who they are at this point. Um, they are a middle-of-the-pack offense. They are a middle-of-the-pack defense. Yes, they've had some injury issues, but everybody does, or at least most teams do. And now that they're fully healthy, or at least healthy-ish, I know Kaminga's still battling some stuff, um, they're out there losing to Detroit, Orlando, Phoenix, and now Chicago with only that win against San Antonio uh, mixed in between. Uh, I don't you know. People have asked and, and wondered, is there some residual effect of Draymond versus Jordan Poole? I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to Draymond, who was on with uh, Taylor Rooks recently, and, and he admitted like the relationship's not what it used to be, but you know, it's, it's a work in progress with them. But I, I don't think that's the issue uh, with this team. I, I don't think that Draymond and any friction with Jordan Poole contributes to the fact this team kicks the ball around like a soccer team, you know, committing turnovers. Like, they are just sloppy with the basketball right now. You look at that Chicago game. They committed 23 turnovers in that game. 23. You look at games where teams are scoring at least 25 points off turnovers, they're 1-9 and nine in those games. Like, they, they don't take care of the basketball well at all this year. And they're not good enough defensively to, you know, be able to you know, overcome that deficiency, especially when you look at, you know, they don't have a rim protector right now. Kevon Looney's about six foot nine. Um, but they're also not stopping the ball at the point of attack. Like, you know, Andrew Wiggins has been in and out of the lineup with injury, but he's not been the kind of defensive presence they've needed. Thompson, Curry, they have not been, you know, pool, they have not been point of attack type of defenders. That's a problem for this team. Uh, right now. So that's something that needs to be fixed. And when I talk to people around the league who have, you know, conversed with the Warriors, talked to their front office, to your point, they're pretty keenly aware that they need something 
This is not a problem or problems in Golden State that I think they believe can simply be resolved internally. They might be a better than 500 team internally, but they're not a championship team internally because they don't have the veteran pieces off the bench that they've been able to rely on in years past, something we've talked about a lot uh, on this podcast. So I do think they're going to be very aggressive, whether it's at the trade deadline or when the buyout market starts to crystallize in bringing one of those guys in. Because, look, Andre Iguodala's back, but you can't count on Andre Iguodala to be anything more than kind of a, a bit player in the postseason. Just, I just He's just not at that level of his or stage of his career anymore. Kaminga, I like what Kaminga's done defensively a little bit in some of the games that I've watched, but he's been in and out. Moses Moody can't do anything right now. Not to say he can't ever do it, but he's not a factor for this team at the moment. And Wiseman's not reliable uh, either. So they need something. They need some kind of, you know, Jeff Green type that, you know, for lack of a better comparison, that can come off the bench, give them good minutes defensively, can shoot the three ball a little bit. Those guys don't grow on trees. They're very difficult to find, which is why all teams kind of want a piece of them. But I can tell you from talking to people around the league that they, that they believe the Warriors believe to use a roundabout way of saying it, that the Warriors are not quite good enough. No, I mean, to your to your Dennis Green reference, you know, you are what you what you your record says you are. I mean, I, the weird thing about the Warriors is they are this rare team where we can look at the record, we can look at recent results, and say this is who they are. Like it's over and over and over again proven it. Halfway point of the season, this is still where they are. Then maybe that's just it. But I think there's a, a a cognitive dissonance here because I think we all look at them at full strength and say, well, hold on. Steph is still playing at an MVP level. Just, you know, had an injury that knocked him out for a few weeks, but Steph's still at an MVP level. And Clay is better now than he was a year ago because he's that much further along and having come back from all those injuries. And Draymond's still playing at an incredibly high level. So, and they're the defending champs. We just saw them celebrating in Boston last June. And so it's hard to just look at them and, and accept the numbers and the record for different what it is. Different team, though. A little bit, little bit different it's, team. It is definitely different. And look, it's funny, or it's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, at one point I would have said, man, they just should have kept Gary Payton Jr. They should have kept Otto Porter. Well, Otto Porter's now out for the season, hasn't, has barely played at all, and is out for the season um, with surgery. Gary Payton's barely played for Portland. So the guys that we thought of as so critical that they should maybe should not have let go have barely played so far this season. That said, yes, those are the kinds of elements that they're missing and did not replace because they were counting on the idea that Moody Kaminga Weissman would just simply take those spots in the rotation and they would just, you know, keep on going. But yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they're not, I'm not saying that, that, that there's no reason to, 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 be concerned. I'm not saying that they're exactly the same team. All I'm saying is the cognitive dissonance is you look at the record and you look at it, but you go, yeah, but I could see somehow something clicks, the switch flips, they play with a little bit more urgency. Do I still believe that a core of Steph, Clay, Draymond has the potential to make a deep playoff run? Yeah, I, I, I do. Maybe that's foolish. Um, and maybe that's them being foolish themselves <laughs> in believing it so stubbornly. Uh, but yeah, look, they, they need some. They need a little bit of help. They they need uh, another piece or two, and maybe some of it also is just simply they need to get closer to the playoffs when everybody's you know urgency level will be at its highest consistently. 
All right, I want to talk about Memphis, a team that's going in a different direction right now. Winners of nine straight going into Monday's game. John Morant doing John Morant-y things, ridiculous dunks. Uh, you know, we had the dunk of the year the other night. Oh we just cocked that ball back my and gosh. let it fly. I mean, that was just ridiculous. Um, Memphis is good. They're deep. Uh, they're young. They're athletic. Um <sighs> How are we feeling about Memphis right now? Are we feeling like Memphis has all the pieces in place to be uh, a Western Conference winning team at least this year? Or do you look at the Grizzlies saying and have some type of concern? In a normal season where the West uh, pecking order was more established or where there were you know teams that were not just strong in talent, but had a pedigree of of postseason success, you'd say, yeah, maybe the Grizzlies aren't ready yet. This feels like a season where it's like, you know what? Forget all of our axioms about youth not winning or, you know, hey, the Grizzlies don't have a ton of playoff experience. Like, their talent level is great. They've got an, an incredible offensive engine in John Morant. They've got a potential defensive player of the year in uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. They've got all these versatile pieces. Um... They like this is a year where inexperience may not matter ultimately because the two best teams in the West by record right now are the Grizzlies and the Nuggets and the Nuggets have no postseason um, success to speak of either. Now, the Nuggets have more postseason experience than they do. They're a more veteran team than the Grizzlies. But man, I, I, I am I am I am I betting on the Nuggets over the Grizzlies if that's the conference finals, maybe based on home court advantage if they have it. But like, that's not a given. Um you know, if it's New Orleans versus Memphis, the fourth best team in the in the West, by the way, when we talk about like, uh, oh, I can't believe it's midseason and certain certain trends and everything, you, you are who your record says you are. The record says the Sacramento Kings are the fourth best team in the Western Conference, Chris Mannix. Um, and the Mavericks are sitting there hovering at fifth. I don't believe in the Mavericks as a title contender. I don't believe in the Kings as a title contender. The Clippers are sixth and I don't. I, I, they're, they're another one of those cognitive dissonance teams, right? The talent says one thing, the record says something else. I don't know what to make of them. I still don't know what to make of the Warriors. Can the Grizzlies make a deep playoff run or make the finals in a year like this? And I'm not saying it's it, like it's like they wouldn't earn it. They would absolutely earn it. But in a normal year, I would think, ah, oh, the Grizzlies are maybe still a year away because they've got to go through all these other teams. Well, no, nobody looks unbeatable. Nobody, nobody looks that dominant. And yeah, the Grizzlies are legit, man. They, they can make the finals. I, I, that I would not bet against at all. I wouldn't bet against them either in large part because you're probably not you know, definitively betting against anybody in this Western Conference playoff field. I, I will play kind of devil's advocate against the Grizzlies here for a moment. Uh, just kind of diving into some of the advanced numbers. They, they don't play a lot of half-court basketball, and that's credit to them. They're ultra-athletic. They get up and down. But if you look at some of the numbers, they're one of the bottom five teams in the NBA in terms of playing in the half court. You know, they 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 just play in transition a lot more, and that's because they've got an ultra engine in jaw, a bunch of young guys on the wings, and and they're effective that way. So I do wonder, you know, going into the playoffs where the game invariably slows down, how effective they're going to be when possessions matter a little bit more when defenses tighten a little bit more, um, you know, will they still be able to get up and down at the same pace that they're doing it um, 
right now in the regular season. That's concern number one. Concern number two, they're not a great three-point shooting team. And they don't defend the three especially well. And those are two pretty big elements in today's NBA to be successful at. They're a middle-of-the-pack three-point shooting team. They're a middle-of-the-pack uh, defending the three-point uh, line team. That that's that's a bit of a red flag for me, Howard. When when I look when I look at Memphis, that that's why to me, and we talked about this with Golden State, like Memphis is a prime candidate to go out there and try to you know extract one of those top three point shooters, whether it is Malik Beasley from Utah or somebody else that might be out there, just to add one more piece to that puzzle. Now, whoever they bring in, it's not easy to crack that Memphis rotation, and that's a credit to their front office, which has done a phenomenal job of drafting guys and having plug-and-play guys. You know, when somebody goes out, you know, you got guys like Zaire Williamson, who's having a great month of January, able to step in and play. Desmond Baines, one of the best shooters in the NBA. He's getting big minutes. Dylan Brooks, you want his defense on the floor, so you got to play him minutes. But if I'm looking at a weakness for Memphis right now, it's three-point shooting. And on the defensive side, it's defending the three-point line. Because I think you've got to be elite, at, like at least one of them, to be a championship-level team in today's NBA. All fair, and yeah, look, they're a team that I'm sure will be um, scouring the market, looking to see if they can find another 3 and D guy or just some shooting in general. Um, and you're right to point out that that's a weakness, but the counter to that is this is, as we record this, by a couple of points, the number one defense in the NBA for the season, just a, a, a few ticks ahead of Cleveland and Milwaukee. And when you look at who they're up against in the West, well, the Denver Nuggets, for all of their offensive firepower and for all of the greatness of Jokic and a nice supporting cast and better three-point shooting than the Grizzlies, the Nuggets are the 18th ranked defense in the NBA. And like, you know, when we start talking about the things that are seem to be determinative of, of making a deep playoff run or making the finals, sure, the Grizzlies, we look at and you say, oh, well, I'm concerned about their three-point shooting. You look at the, the, the Nuggets and you say, yeah, but they're nowhere near the level of defense that we typically associate with a team that makes the finals. So um, that's, and that's the thing back to the, to the, to the field here. Every one of these teams has blemishes. I mean, the Pelicans, is Brandon Ingram ever going to play again? Uh, Zion Williamson is out, you know, they're going to be dealing with, you know, health issues, but the Pelicans are a really well-balanced team, right? So the Pelicans in a series, um, Absolutely, you know, I, I would I would fear them if I were the Grizzlies. Uh, the Grizzlies probably don't fear anybody. That's not really the way that they uh, that they operate. But the Pelicans are are offensively really diverse, really talented, plenty of shooting, a lot of different guys who can attack you, and they're a great defensive team. Um, they're top five right now themselves. So it's only a concern for the Grizzlies if they run into a team that has better balance than they do, um, and they might, they might. Yeah, I. I as John Morant said, doesn't fear anybody in the West, just Boston in the Eastern Conference. So, uh, yeah, I don't think they're afraid of any of those teams, but uh, that, that is something to keep an eye on. Like, And maybe it makes the Western Conference – it's what makes the Western Conference so great because you, you really could you know, throw a dart at a board and say that team um, you know, can win the whole thing because it's wide open. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic, every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar, whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. 
Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, let's get into our uh, awards, midseason awards at the moment. Uh, and let's start with the big one, Howard, MVP. Nikola Jokic is the two-time defending champion. A lot of buzz, but maybe he's going to be a three-time defending champion. Right now, if you had to vote, cast your MVP ballot, email it in to the NBA, who would you give it to? It's Nikola Jokic. Um, I don't even think it's that hard right now. Now, that's not to say it won't be hard in April. It probably will be much harder in April. It's, and it's not to say that this was easy a few weeks ago or a month ago or when Tim Bontemps was uh, texting us for our first straw poll back in whatever that was, mid-December. And my ballot, my fictional in, you know, in-season ballot has changed quite a bit since then uh, because of injuries, because of performance by guys. But right now, it's pretty easily Jokic um, to underscore that. If you go to Basketball References MVP Award Tracker, which is based on an algorithm that has assessed all of the MVPs that have ever been given out in the NBA and said, here's what the likelihood is based on the, the kind of the modeling who usually emerges. Jokic has a 64% probability right now to win it based on past winners. And that is a massive, massive lead over the second place candidate, which is Luka Doncic at 11%, Joel Embiid at 7.7%, and then it goes on down, Tatum. Now, th- that that model, that algorithm is not perfect, and it's just based on past uh, awards, but it gives you a snapshot of, of what usually puts you there. And I'll say this, you know me, 
uh, I am a absolute stickler for the fact that you have to be on not just a winning team, but a team that's relevant, a team that could be a contender, usually top two or three in a conference, usually 50 plus wins or the uh, equivalent in some of these shortened seasons that we've had. Well, and that was the reason I did not have Jokic at the top of my ballot last season. I, I had him at the top of my ballot two seasons ago. He was no, I, I, The first year he won, I had him at the top. Last season, I had Giannis. Jokic won it again. Um, this time, right as of right now, there's no question about the wins part of it. I always say two, two elements, individually dominant, and your team has to be succeeding at a high, high level. Well, the Nuggets are number one in the West as we record this. Their winning percentage of 698 is uh, outstanding. They are on pace for winning in the high, high 50s, 57 wins as of right now, they're on pace for. So I, I, I can't knock him on wins. Um, I, the, the, the stats are outstanding. He's averaging a, a near triple-double. He's efficient as, as you can possibly be. He's, he's at historic levels in that regard. He just hit a game-winner <laughs> yesterday. Um, game-winning three-pointer as casually... By, by the way, just to, yeah, just to touch on that game-winning three-pointer yeah. from Sunday, like I was, text, I was texting with people in the, in the uh, Nuggets front office and... You know, they're just kind of laughing. Like, what was that step back all about? Like, he's, he's, you didn't need the three in that moment. He decided to step back and shoot a three. And they're, they're just constantly amazed by this guy. Like, he just does something unique. Like, it feels like every single game. The most casual clutch shooter I've ever seen or been around is Robert Ori. You know, all those years I covered the Lakers. And Rob was like, the ball just finds him, he just flings it up. You know, it goes in. He's like, yeah, of course, of course it did. Like that, like there's a certain casualness the way Robert Ory conducted himself in clutch moments. That's Jokic. And of course, Jokic is at a whole other level with the rest of his game. I'm not comparing them as players, but in terms of the demeanor, the kind of casualness with which Jokic just kind of said, I'm going to step back, give myself a little bit more space here. Or maybe it was, I want to leave no doubt. I don't know what, what goes through his head as, as he's kind of just skipping backwards by a step or two and, and, and hitting that three. But it was like, yeah, whatever. This is just what I do. I'm good. You know, like, okay. All his, all his teammates are celebrating, jumping up on him. He's like, guys, guys, settle down. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's ridiculous. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. If I was filing an MVP vote today, it would be for Nikola Jokic for all the reasons that you mentioned, not the least of which is the Nuggets are sitting right now atop the Western Conference uh, standings. Um he has always been a darling of the advanced statistics, and this has been no different. You look yep. at 538's numbers, the Raptor rankings. Uh, Raptor win above replacement, 11.5. That is significantly higher than Luka Doncic, who was at 9.3. Total Raptor rankings, he's at plus 15. That is significantly better than the next few guys after that. Offensive ratings, he's just behind Luka Doncic in that category as well. Like... He is great at traditional statistics. He is phenomenal in the advanced statistics category. His team is winning. I, I, you really have to look for reasons not to vote for him this year. Now, the counter-argument will come from people that say, oh, you're going to regret that vote in the playoffs like when, you know, let's say LeBron gets his guys healthy, gets on the piece, and he makes a run. Then the LeBron you know, cartel, the media cartel will say, you know, LeBron, you know, should have been the guy. Luka Doncic, you can say, if Luka Doncic had um, the supporting cast that Nikola Jokic has around him this year, he would be in the exact same position. Maybe that's true, but you can't 
You can't do that. You just have to look at what's in front of you. And what's in front of me right now is a guy putting up outstanding numbers, MVP numbers, on a team that's playing exceptionally well. So I, I don't, at this point, I, I don't see an argument against voting for Jokic. In fact, I don't see an argument right now for voting for somebody else. No, I mean, listen, um, I, 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 we're not going to do our, our one through five like we will on the real ballot, but as I was trying to figure out, well, what would my descending order be after Jokic? It's probably Jason Tatum number two, and he's had a fantastic season, and the Celtics are having a fantastic season, and he's got a really strong case. Um, it's just not as strong as Jokic is right now, and that could change. Kevin Durant would be probably number three on my ballot right now, but by the time we get to April, how many games will he have missed or played, and where will the Nets be at that time? So Durant, you know, may not be able to hang on, but Durant's had an outstanding season, and the Nets have been fantastic. But like Luca, the Mavericks don't win enough. Again, I, I think it's really important to win at a high level. I will always, always stand by that. So if the Mavericks aren't a team that I could see as a, a being a serious contender, they're on pace for 44 wins. Okay, that's fine. But and and it's not Luca's fault. But you know, sorry, like that. The 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 precedent is the precedent, and you know it. As a as a voting body, we deviated from precedent for Jokic last year. We deviated from precedent for Westbrook the year he won it. But other than that, it's been 40 years of guys on 50 win plus teams. Um, Joel Embiid, he's missed 25% of the schedule so far. Hard to, to back him, even though he's having a fantastic season at both ends of the court. And the Sixers are a team that I expect to be relevant when we get to the postseason. John Morant, Donovan Mitchell, both having great seasons on, on high level teams. They're just not as dominant as some of the guys I've already mentioned. Steph Curry, Zion Williamson, they were in this discussion at one point. Both of them have missed too many games. And then there's Giannis. Kind of a down season for him, especially in efficiency. Kind of a, a wonky season for the Bucks. May still be heard from, though. Like, all of these guys I've just mentioned could still be on a five-man ballot in April. But as of right now, I think it's pretty clearly Jokic just ahead of Tatum and Durant. Yeah, I'd agree. Um I haven't thought too much of the down ballot at this point, but I would probably put Tatum right there, Durant right there. But to your point, you know, if what? he's out a month, that's probably going to take him out of discussion. One more thing. I just want to hit this real quick before we move to some of the other awards. Personally, while I think that winning three in a row is on some level its own honor, right? It puts you in a category with Larry Bird, Wilt Chamberlain, and Bill Russell. That is elite, elite status. And some people are going to say, well, I can't see Jokic being there given who else is in that club. This is too elite of a club for him to join given that we haven't seen him do it in the postseason, given that um, we're still not sure where, you know, where this is going to go from here. Like, it, it, it's hard for people to put a player in a category with legends like that. I get it, but... I don't think we can view it that way. I, I cannot vote against Jokic on the basis of I just can't see him being a three-time champ. Like, yes, on some level, I, I agree it is its own honor because it doesn't happen very often and it hasn't happened in decades. But we got to vote on what's in front of us. And if Jokic is having the best MVP season, the best season statistically, the best season in terms of results, the best season in terms of what it's doing for his team. If he checks all the other boxes, I'm not going to, to, to knock him down a peg on the ballot just because, well, I don't think he should be up there with Larry Bird and Wilt Chamberlain Curry or, uh, and Bill Russell. Like, 
that's that to me is not logical. And if, if that means in the historical expanse, we someday, quote unquote, regret it because he never does win a championship or he never does perform in the postseason at a certain level. And we'll think, well, he's the outlier among the three consecutive MVP club. Fine, fine. I, I, but I'm not I'm not going to in the moment try to prejudge that. It's a regular season award. It is. This is what it is. And it's an indi- it's and it's, and it's, award. And it's that season. It's not a rolling three-year basis or five. Like it's who who has earned it for this season as of right now. Like he's the clear leader. I agree. Uh, all right, let's look at coach of the year, which is a little bit more competitive at the moment. Well, maybe not. I've got a pretty clear uh, front runner in my mind. Um, I, I'll jump in first on this one, Howard. I like Mike Brown and Sacramento to win this. I mean. What's it going on? Almost two decades of futility in Sacramento. They are just just one bad decision after another. A carousel of coaches that have made their way through there since they were a good team under Rick Adelman in the early 2000s. Mike Brown has come in. And as we record this, as you touched on a moment ago, they are right there in the four seed in the Western Conference. Now, that can change in a week. You see the... The proximity of teams that are at like 8, 9, and 10 to teams that are 3, 4, and 5. But right now, Mike Brown has had the best coaching season. I think Jacques Vaughn has been tremendous, you know, riding the ship in Brooklyn. Joe Missoula has done a phenomenal job uh, keeping that team running smoothly in the aftermath of the Ime Udoka situation in Boston. But I look at Sacramento, and, and look, they're still not an elite defensive team. But the fact that they're like 25th right now in defensive efficiency, and at times have been in the teens, in that mid-range, like, that's a pretty big accomplishment. This was a utterly incompetent defensive team last year. Like, ridiculously bad last year. Cartoonishly bad at times last year. They are playing a little bit of defense this season, which, coupled with their great offense, which is being spearheaded by Demonte Sabonis, who might be an all-star, De'Aaron Fox, who might be an all-star, you know, a couple of guys that are playing at an all-star level that got good shooting, Kevin Herter, great acquisition by uh, by Monty McNair in that front office, uh, you know, Keegan Murray, when he's been healthy, he has been good for that team as well, uh, but Mike Brown's the guy that's brought it all together, you know, he has brought a defensive mindset to this team, and even though they're not very good defensively, they're better than last year, and and they're at least trying on that end, which is more than you can say for previous seasons. Yeah, I mean, listen, I obviously agree with all of that. Um, I love what the Kings are doing. They have just been a, a, a really this is like a, of all the like revival, renaissance, turnarounds, whatever in recent years. Like this one's a lot of fun, and and part partially it's heightened by the fact that the Kings have a, a record long postseason drought. And it's a great fan base and they're a fun team right now. One of the other things to note with regard to Mike Brown and the imprint he's had there. And yeah, listen, you're still bottom third of the NBA. Don't, don't let's not give them any awards just yet for, for a defensive revival, bottom third of the league in defensive rating, but um, they're doing better on that end. And, you know, they really didn't make a lot of like, you know, dramatic offseason moves. Like the most dramatic move was Sabonis at midseason last year or last, uh, yeah, last year and last season. Um, so it is their first full season with him. So that matters, but it's not as though they brought in 
uh, some absolute game changer for this season. And yet the results this season are, are clearly, um, you know, a, a, a next evolutionary step ahead of where they were. Um, I think Mike Brown is a really strong candidate. I think with coach of the year, like, I, I hate the fact that people have turned the word narrative into some sort of pejorative, that's ah, just the narrative, or they hate, you know, narrative comes into play in awards. Narrative is just story, and story is just context, and context matters. Coach of the Year is probably the most narrative-driven of the postseason awards that we vote on because Coach of the Year often goes to a coach of a team that exceeded expectations in some way, either went from good to great, or went from lottery to, to surprise playoff team, Um and coaching, most of coaching is something that we cannot see. It's impenetrable. It's in practices and shoot-arounds and things that we are not privy to. We see what they do in game in game decisions, but so much of coaching is out of sight from the public. And so a lot of this does come down to, well, what is? how does it look like the team is responding to this coach? What kind of leaps have they made? Um, are they getting the most out of the guys they have? Are they getting a surprising amount out of the guys they have? So Mike Brown checks off a bunch of boxes with that. And yes, the... The fun of and and the, and the, even a little bit of surprise of the Kings making this kind of leap will play into it ultimately. So I think he's going to be there throughout. But let me hit a couple of the other top candidates. Like Jacques Vaughn's an obvious one here. And if if my fictional ballot were being you know sent in right now, it might just be Jacques Vaughn at the top. The Nets, the turnaround they've made. Um, people have been kicking around this question, and I don't know the answer to it. If anyone's looked it up, but has anyone ever won Coach of the Year? as essentially, not the interim, because they gave Jacques a, a contract, so he's not interim, but as the in-season replacement and become coach of the year. Uh, it's been an impressive turnaround. It's a, it's due to a lot of things. It's not, you know, like it's, we've, we've talked about this, not to um, diminish anything that Jacques Vaughn has done. I, I think he's been the right voice and the right uh, leader at the right time. But they got healthy. Um, ben Simmons started to get his game together. Not so much recently. Let's see how they do with Durant out for two, three, four weeks, whatever it's going to be. That's going to impact how we view this. And right now, by the way, they're 0-2 without Durant, and Kyrie's been uh, shrinking from the moment. So that's going to impact things. My next man up on that ballot, though, even possibly before Mike Brown, might just be Willie Green. Uh, they have seamlessly incorporated Zion back, and Zion's out. But bringing Zion in as a guy who had not even played with this group Right, it was almost like he was a new player to that team because they found their their footing last season after the McCollum trade. They incorporated McCollum with Ingram, then they bring in Zion. Now you got a big three. Then Ingram's out. Zion's in. Like a lot of youth on this roster. There's just a lot that Willie Green has had to manage with this group, and I think he's done a fantastic job. And then just to note this, the coach of the year race is always like six, seven, eight deep. Like there's always a bunch of good candidates, depending on whether you're pulling from the the top tier of, of teams or that middle tier where somebody's made a leap. All the guys we mentioned are going to be in this race. Missoula, as you mentioned, is in this race. I think Taylor Jenkins is in this race with the Grizzlies. I think Michael Malone never gets enough credit for what the Nuggets do year in, year out, despite always having guys hurt, despite always having to reshuffle the deck, despite a franchise star in Jokic, who you know is not going to be your defensive anchor. Um, and you always have to try to patch things up around him. Like there's a lot of, of, of things that Michael Malone has to manage there that he just never gets enough credit for and probably should be on some ballots as well. All right, so you would go Jacques Vaughn number one, and okay, just, just so it's just ahead of Willie one. Green and, and Mike Brown. I think if if we're doing the the typical three man ballot, 
Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, that's a perfectly reasonable one. I think Jack Vaughn's been instrumental to that team's success, settling that locker room, being kind of the respected guy uh, in that locker room. All right, uh, let's do one more, and let's do Rookie of the Year right now. Um, you know, it's actually a pretty good rookie class. Paolo Banchero at number one uh, has been outstanding for the Magic. The only guy among the rookies who has wound up in the uh, all-star balloting, at least early on. Uh, Benedict Matherin, I don't know if anybody saw him coming. He has been great for this team. Keegan Murray, uh, when he's been healthy, starting to make some shots. Who is at the top, Howard, of your Rookie of the Year ballot? I mean, this one's not even really a debate. It's Ben Caro by a lot. I don't think anybody else even has a case to be at the top. I got a, a lot of guys have a case to be in the discussion and to be on the ballot, which, again, it's a three-man ballot when we finally vote in April. But Ben Caro's first in, among rookies in scoring, fourth in rebounds, second in assists. He's doing it at a solid efficiency. The Magic are are legitimately competitive a lot of nights. Um, they actually seem to have some hope for the first time. Now, some of that is other guys that they've brought all, along the way too, in, including, of course, Franz Wagner. Um, but Bancaro just has the strongest case. It's rare for... So Rookie of the Year is one of the, the awards where we don't really pay attention to wins as much. It's It could be a tiebreaker, but it's not the most important thing because generally the best rookies go to the, the the teams that have the least talent. That's the way the lottery and the draft work. So I'm not going to look at, oh, they're not winning enough. And granted, Matherin has contributed to a, a, a likely playoff team in Indiana, but he doesn't have the same level of uh, responsibility either. So to me, it's Bancaro pretty clearly over Matherin. Um, the third guy, person on the ballot, whether that's Ivy, Murray, Kessler, uh, yeah, I, who knows? We'll we'll see. But I, I mean, I don't I don't think anybody right now can make a case to be ahead of Bancaro with half a season to go. No, I don't think so. I think the only argument um, is that Bancaro's team's not winning, and can Matherin find his way into the mix because he's? I mean, you can probably make a equally as strong case for Matherin as Sixth Man of the Year as you can for Rookie of the Year. Yeah, I mean, he's been that good Absolutely. for Indiana. But, like, is that – how do you factor that in? The fact that Ben Caro's putting up numbers on a team that's not really going anywhere, whereas it, Matherin's putting up numbers on a team that's winning some games. Well, one, history of Rookie of the Year is that Rookie of the Year usually comes from losing teams or, or non-playoff teams because that's just the way the draft goes. The reverse order of draft is meant to reward the teams – or help the teams that need the help the most, which means you're going to a losing team. And in this day and age, you know, if you go back 30, 40 years, when guys played three or four years in college and you got a Grant Hill or a Tim Duncan coming out, or even Shaq after a couple of years at LSU, you had guys that were, were polished enough that on day one, they could turn a losing team into a winning team. It's rare in this day and age uh, where guys are usually one and done to come in and, and change a team's fate overnight. They're just not ready. They're too young. So I, I'm not I'm not that concerned with it. Um, yes, it's great that Matherin is playing a, a really important role and playing great basketball for a team that's going to make the playoffs. I don't dismiss that at all. But Bancaro simply has more responsibility and has to do more for the Magic. And it's not empty numbers, right? This isn't like, oh, he's putting up stats on like a massive usage rate. He's playing fairly efficiently, especially considering he's a rookie who's become, you know, the clear focal point of his team from day one so now that could change like if Bancaro's efficiency goes in the tank and the magic lose a ton down the stretch and you know Matherin takes on an even greater role 
as the Pacers keep pushing and the Pacers somehow manage to be fifth in the East. Or so. I, I don't know. Stuff could happen. This could change. Nothing. None of this is set in stone. But like I, I think Bancaro is pretty clearly the rookie of the year as of the, the midway point. And I think Matherin, I don't know if, if we want to do a couple minutes on sixth man before we go, but I think Matherin's mm. absolutely in the mix for sixth man. Yeah, quickly to finish, to put a button on the rookie of the year. I agree with you. I would give my vote to uh, Paolo Banquero. Um I, I, I do, I, I think it's kind of crazy to even think of the fact that it was almost a debate on draft night whether the Magic were going to draft Paolo Bancaro or Jabari Smith. No disrespect to Jabari Smith, who I think is going to be a good player, but Bancaro looks like a tremendous player at the NBA level. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Let's do a couple minutes uh, on sixth man. Where do you stand on sixth man? Matherin, uh, you got Malcolm Brogdon out there, a couple other guys. Where do you stand on sixth man? Can I start with who it's not? Yes. It's not Russell Westbrook. <laughs> and I like this is not to pick on Russell Westbrook or people who what well, it is to pick on people who are going crazy about oh oh my god look at what Westbrook's doing as six man and he he's embraced this role and look at the numbers he's putting up and we've never seen these kinds of numbers for a six man. Folks, Stop, catch your breath for a minute, and look at the standings. The Lakers are 13th in the West, five games under 500. Not for nothing, but Westbrook blew the final possession against the Sixers in a winnable game uh, last night. 
Um, I don't know how LeBron does not end up with the ball in his hands at some point in that possession. Uh, do, do we have to like, do we have to pause and talk about that for a brief minute? Like, Cause I was <laughs> sure. on the, the Westbrook train, you know, should he be considered for sixth man? I think he's been impactful in the Lakers somewhat recent run of success, but my God, like to look, he had a good defensive possession the play before, like forced Joel Embiid to take a tough shot. Mm. But then to get the ball back with 12 seconds left and isolate on Embiid and, and I know Embiid probably fouled him, but what was that? Well, for, but first he's over dribbling, so then he fumbles the ball. That cost a couple seconds. He regathers the ball, and then he finally moves over uh, to to try to throw what I guess was a pass, um, and 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 gets deflected. Like he like that that last possession was classic Russell Westbrook in the fourth quarter of a game where he's dominating the ball to no end where he's dribbling away a possession, where he's failing to, to account for his teammates. You've got one of the greatest players in the history of the game, maybe the greatest player in the history of the game, sitting right there. Like, that's, like it's, it's unforgivable. Whether he got fouled or not, it's unforgivable. But beyond that, I, did, I, I, I had to stop because I would have wasted too much time last night, but I was looking at the last time a sixth man came from an under 500 team. I can't find one, Chris. <laughs> I looked... I went back 20 seasons and I could not find, and usually the sixth man of the year. So this is the thing. If you're sixth man of the year, the best player off the bench in the NBA, but it's, if you're, if you're the best player off the bench, you can't be from like a lottery team. Can you like that? What, what is the point of being a great sixth man if you're on a losing team? So to that point last year, Tyler Hero was sixth man of the year. Heat had the best record in the East. The year before it was Jordan Clarkson. Jazz had the best record in the NBA. The year before was Montrez Harrell. Clippers were number two in the West. 2019 and 2018, Lou Williams both years, 48 wins, 42 wins. That 42 wins was the least I could find by a sixth man of the year winner. Um, and again, at least over 500. Before that, Eric Gordon for a, Rock, for a Rockets team that won 55 games. Jamal Crawford for a Clippers team that won 53. Lou Williams again for a Raptors team that won 49. On and on and on, Jamal Crawford again. J.R. Smith back with the the, uh, the Knicks, the 54-win season. And if you keep going back, like I, I even at a glance, I could not find a case where the sixth man of the year was on a, 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 a lottery team, basically. And that's what the Lakers are right now. So no. There is no sixth man of the year candidacy for Russell Westbrook if the Lakers are this bad. So as of right now, I think I got Malcolm Brogdon at the top. Can I? Can I? Can yeah. I just? I, I would like to throw my two cents in on the Russell Westbrook. <laughs> I, look, I agree with everything you said there, and I think that play from Sunday night broke me. That just broke me. Like you've got, I mean, a couple things to take away from this because we have to address this. To now. say what? Nothing of how much but it I, broke Lakers I fans. <laughs> I did. And I texted you earlier in the day, like, because you suggested talking Lakers. I'm like, I can't do Lakers. I can't. We talk about it every week, and most of the time it's justified. But here we are at this point. Um, several things wrong with that. Number one, like, where's Darvin Ham in that situation? Like, you have a timeout left. Like, Russell Westbrook gets the stop. He's dribbling the ball up. And once you see that look in Russell Westbrook's eye, where he sees red, he sees Joel Embiid standing in front of him, and he says, I'm going to go get him. Why, Darvin Ham, are you not running towards the referee and calling timeout? Yep. You still would have given yourself 10 seconds. You could have run a play. LeBron was 15 for 23 in that game, one of his best games of the season. That's the guy you've got to get a touch. You've got to get the ball in LeBron's hands. I do have a slight issue with LeBron, too, because if you watch that play develop, like LeBron kind of coasts up the floor, 
and doesn't go get the ball. Like, if I'm LeBron, I am stomping my feet, clapping, saying, give me the ball. I know, look, not that he needed to take the shot, but the ball needed to touch his hand. Howard, on the same night, we saw the Nuggets go out of their way to get Nikola Jokic the ball at the end of that game. And Jokic, that wasn't a high-percentage shot. Like, that was a great shot, but it wasn't a high-percentage shot. It was a step-back three-pointer from a seven-footer. That was not, I don't care who you are, that was not a (laughs) high-percentage shot. But they made sure he got the ball. In those situations, LeBron James needs to touch the basketball. I I just was flabbergasted by that entire sequence at the end of that game. And look, I understand Darvin Ham has to support his guy. He has been staunchly in Westbrook's corner from day one, and that's really the only way you can you can keep him engaged yes. with this team. But the idea that he would take that, what did he say? You know, six times a week and twice on Sunday, whatever he said. Like, I don't, I, no, no, no. The ball needed to go in LeBron's hand. A timeout should have been called. They should have run a play, and they would have had a chance to win a game that they may need in April come playoff time. That was an NBA TV game, so when the game ended, at least on my TV, it went to to the NBA TV studio, and they had Terry Stotts and Sam Mitchell there. Both, of course, uh, you know, have coached a lot of years in the NBA, and they were dancing around a little bit. Like, Sam Mitchell initially went all in on the idea, like, you got to call a timeout, and Stotts, it was funny because he kind of went through this thing about how, because Stotts is still new to the NBA TV thing. And I don't know how many times he's been on this season or or I haven't seen all of it or what he said, but he actually kind of said initially he was kind of agreeing with Mitchell about that Darwin's got to call a timeout. But then he was like, you know, we've gotten in trouble a couple of times for the things of second guessing. So I don't really want to go there. Like he was trying to be very careful and respectful of Darvin Ham. And they even went to the extent of saying, you know, this is one of those cases where if the court had been reversed, you know, that possession was happening in front of the Sixer bench. If it had been happening in front of the Laker bench, it's a lot easier, they were saying, for Darvin Ham to get the referee's attention and call the timeout from the bench. But you're behind the play. You're at the other end of the court. And <laughs> like, no, they were, no, no, they no, were no, trying no. hard to give him a little grace there, but it seemed pretty clear to me that that the two coaches sitting there in the studio were like, uh, yeah, you're supposed to call a timeout in that situation. And yeah, I look, ultimately, you know, we can say the buck stops with the head coach. That's fine. Darvin Ham's a, a, a rookie head coach, but he's been around the game a long time and has been on a bench a long time as an assistant before this and played in the game a long time. Okay, that's all fine. But Westbrook is a veteran. Westbrook is a guy who knows how the end-of-game situations go and are supposed to go. This is just, this is just, it's prototypical Westbrook. He dominates the ball to his team's detriment a lot of the time. It's been the issue I've had with him in general. It's been an issue that the Lakers have had in trying to succeed with him because he's used to being the guy and he's on a team with LeBron freaking James. This, like your, the, your entire goal as you're going up court for the final possession of a winnable game is where is LeBron? How do I get him the ball and let him do LeBron things? And if we lose with LeBron doing LeBron things because he doesn't get to the basket because he's a step slower now because he's older or he doesn't get the call or LeBron takes a bad shot himself, whatever. I'll, li- I'll live with LeBron not getting off the, the the best shot or LeBron. Like, you, LeBron's probably going to draw a crowd and, and hit an open shooter. And whatever he's going to do, I will live with that because we know LeBron's always going to make the right play. And he's just a better player than Russell Westbrook. Like, this is not rocket science. This is basic basketball. Um, that that of, of In a season full of, like, little mini tragedies for the Lakers, that was a pretty bad one. All right, so sixth man then 
for me, and and I, you said Brogdon, and I'll, I'll give you a chance to kind of explain that position. Six man to me is between Malcolm Brogdon and Benedict Matherin. And I, it's good points on the record of teams that have had the sixth man of the year. Uh, the Pacers might not end up with a record that's much better than 500, but I, I think because the expectations for Indiana were so low and because Matherin has been so impactful in their getting to this point, if, if you look at the reasons why they're there, it's, of course, Tyrese Halliburton. It's Buddy Heald making shots. It's Miles Turner largely staying healthy. But Matherin has done some unbelievable things for that team this year. So that that uh, to me, it's a coin flip right now. With, Mal- with Malcolm Brogdon and Matherin. Brogdon, the, the case is pretty obvious. He comes off the bench. He's steady. He's reliable. He's making shots. Uh, he's been able to stay healthy-ish this year. Um, but, I, you know, Matherin has a chance in my mind if he continues to, to be one of the driving forces behind this Indiana surge, he's got a chance to be one of those kind of middle-of-the-pack teams that has the sixth man of the year. He's got a chance, and he especially has a chance because Brogdon has an injury history, which if Brogdon you know, gets hurt a couple more times or misses a lot of games, um, that could sink him a little bit. And, and Matherin, who I don't think has missed a game yet, um, could, could rise based on that. Uh, if you look at the sixth man of the year candidates based on scoring, like Matherin, 17 points a game over Brogdon at 14 points a game. But, you know, Matherin's also taking two more, almost actually three more shots per game. Brogdon, Brogdon's shooting 45% from three, um, which, you know, blows everybody else in this discussion out of the water. So, you know, Brogdon, you know, uh, lower uh, usage rate, higher efficiency, that helps his case, his playmaking, you know, he's averaging almost four assists a game and four rebounds a game. Matherin's at, at 1.4 assists. Um, I, I just think that, you know, and you, you, on top of it all, of course, the Celtics have been the best team in the NBA. If you are the uh, really productive sixth man, steady scorer, steady playmaker, crunch time player, defender for a team that is likely to go to the finals or minimum conference finals, like that is the classic sixth man of the year case. Like that's it in a nutshell. And, um, Matherin's got a shot, but you know, I, I would I, I think the sixth man doing it at a high level on a team that is one of the best in the NBA naturally gets a little bit more consideration than a guy on the team that's going to be sixth or seventh in the East. No, that's fair. Um, it, I think Malcolm Brogdon is probably the leader in a lot of ballots right now. Matherin, though, surprising I, player, man. By the way, rookie, rookie. When was the last time we had a rookie of the year and and a sixth man of the year candidate? When was the last time that happened? Or or a rookie winning sixth man of the year? I, I'm not sure how often yeah. it's happened. Period. Um, the other guy I would, I would just mention real quick in passing, like, you know, I was looking at like, you know, checking out like the, the, the odds, the Vegas odds. Cause that's sometimes an interesting way to, to look at this. And like some of these guys yeah. aren't going to make it like Oladipo hasn't played enough games, but he's coming on strong. Like he's been important for the heat. Jordan Poole, you know, really erratic this year. Uh, Malik Monk for the Kings, maybe, uh, Malik Beasley, Tyus Jones is, is the other one I think might be on my fictional ballot at the moment, though, for the Grizzlies. Um, and so I just wanted to, to give a quick shout out to him. Again, like a, a team that matters a lot, a team that can make a deep playoff run. And, you know, Tyus Jones plays a really important role for him. We talk about him all the time as maybe the best backup point guard in the NBA. He could start for a lot of teams. We've seen in the past, again, past seasons don't count for this award, but 
We've seen what Tyus Jones can do when he, you know, you want your sixth man to be a guy who can be pressed into starting duty and perform at a high level. And especially at that position, we saw what he did when John Morant missed a ton of games last season. Uh, I just think Tyus Jones, kind of one of those perennially a little under the radar, underappreciated. And uh, I, I think he's in this discussion. Yeah. One other guy I'd put on that list, too, is Christian Wood. And he might wind up playing he's more, more games too as many a starter. Games now? Yeah, I, I think. Oh, look, he was. Yeah, now he has. Yeah. But, you know, who knows what happens when, you know, the Mavericks get healthy. Maybe he goes back to the bench. I don't know. But it, 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 you're probably right. He probably spends too many times, well, uh, too many games. As a actually, but he's, he but started he's, 16 out of 41. So as of right now, he still qualifies by, by, yeah, he still by qualifies. quite a bit. So, yeah. But, you know, I you know Kleber's still out for a while. I think he's going to be in the starting lineup for the foreseeable future. Yeah. But, you know, I watched him play in L.A. on Thursday. And, look, I've been hard on Christian Wood in the past. I thought his Houston run was terrible. I think, you know, his defense has oftentimes been indifferent, let's call it, you know, to be charitable about that. But he just works in Dallas. Like, playing off of... uh Luka Doncic works for him. He's at least trying, I think, more defensively in Dallas. I mean, you saw he had five blocks in that double overtime game against the Lakers, including one which I guess should have been a foul on LeBron at the uh, the end of that game. But, you know, I, I bring I bring Wood up because he's eligible for contract extension now, and there's been talk of the Mavericks trading him if they don't get a contract extension with him done so they don't risk losing him for nothing at the end of the year. I know Christian Wood wants to get paid. I would too. This is your opportunity. But he's got a good thing out there, man. Yeah. Like, he has got a situation where he is playing off arguably the best player in the NBA, a guy that draws defenses or defenders like a magnet and puts him in a position for wide-open threes, which is what Christian Wood does, or lobs, which is what Christian Wood does. So, like, if I'm Christian Wood, I'm not, I'm not saying take a low-ball offer here, but if your desire is to go into free agency and sign a four-year max-level deal with, like, Charlotte. I, I I hope the money's worth it. Like, the money, maybe it, maybe it will be. Maybe you need that, uh, maybe you want that extra cash. But if there's a pathway to getting a deal done with the Dallas Mavericks, Christian Wood needs to do it yeah. because he works there. And he didn't work in Detroit, and I'm not sure he's going to work anywhere else. That's well, just my two cents on it. Yeah, me. and that's the thing, right? Like, he could get a big payday by some team that really, you know, badly needs an offensive-minded big man or who can do some things or whatever, a Charlotte or whoever. And, you know, it, it might be where he makes the most money, but it will probably be a place where he never gets to win at this level again. And that's a tough thing. I, like, I've, I've, you know, thought a lot about this over the years of covering this league and, you know, moderated my own position quite a bit. I used to really... It, it, on some level, it would, it would bother my sensibilities if a guy went for the money instead of winning. And, like, I... I've changed on that. Like it's obviously one, it's, it's not our lives to lead um, or our choice to make. So there's that, but you know, yeah, winning is really important. And we project this as media and fans. We project this, this onto the, to these guys. Well, they should all want to win at the highest level, even if it means sacrificing shots or sacrificing some dollars. Easy for us to say. Um, I, I would not blame Christian Wood if he went for the bag somewhere else, if it were a bigger bag, but yeah, ideally for his career, I, you know, I, this, you said it, like there's no better situation for him. And if, if he can continue to evolve defensively, try to be more accountable at that end of the court, he certainly has the, the, the athleticism and the, the ability to be, be a better defender. Um, 
and playing off of Luca. And if they, you know, they're, they're the Mavericks perpetually one player away, you know, they get that one other guy, whoever it may be. And, and, and they're in business. So they yeah, don't even I, need, like, they don't need, not to make this a Mavericks discussion, but they don't need a second superstar. Like they just need, they need to build that team exactly how the 2011 Mavericks were built around a generational talent like Dirk Nowitzki surrounded by guys that made sense. Shooters, playmakers, right. Jason Kidd, Sean Mar- like just a whole bunch of guys that could, could play at a and, high level. And look, that, that team, you know, there was a little bit of magic to that, right? Like that was, they, they won that, that championship legitimately, but that was a, a rare thing for a team built that way, especially in that era. But more recent vintage, if you want to use a different uh, model, the Milwaukee Bucks, like granted, Chris Middleton yeah. and Drew Holiday have both been all-stars, but these are not top 10 players. These are not guys who are ever in an MVP discussion. They're not all NBA caliber most years. Um, like they're, they they were just good, solid second and third guys. And that's, that's what you need around Luca. Yeah. You don't need to go get, you know, um, a prime Dwayne Wade with, you know, in, in a, in a Wade and LeBron type of, of situation that we saw. It's not a, a Durant and Steph Curry. It's not that kind of thing. Luca is at a level and we are at an equilibrium right now in the NBA where you don't need a super team because of the distribution of talent. And so, yeah, they do not need another perennial NBA guy. They do need somebody who is maybe flirts with all-star potential year in, year out, like a Middleton or Drew Holiday does, or I don't know, like Jalen Brunson <laughs> is doing uh, in New York. And if they'd only kept him plus added wood, you know, maybe they're in a little bit different spot in the standings right now. Uh, we're going to be talking about that decision and and how that all evolved for maybe years to come, given how good the Knicks are looking and how badly the Mavericks need more support for Luca, and I just don't know where they're going to get it. And we will discuss on the podcast next week. <laughs> Howard, good stuff, man. We will do it again next week. Always a pleasure, my friend. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.